Welcome to Rising to the Top Lessons in Leadership, brought to you by Columbia University. This is a podcast where we interview senior industry leaders who share the secrets of their success and reveal pivotal moments that impacted their career path. Come listen as they shed light on obstacles they overcame, as well as wins they achieved. On today's episode, we're proud to welcome Eric Nerlich. Eric Nerlich is an executive coach at Too Many Trees, who draws on 20 years of experience in the tech industry to help leaders have more impact. He helps clients gain clarity on their priorities so they can consciously place their focus and attention where they can have the greatest impact. He loves to identify and challenge mindsets and or habits that are holding clients back from their next level of leadership. Before becoming a coach, Eric spent 10 years as an engineer and product manager across several startups before joining Google and eventually leading business strategy and operations for the Google Search Ads product team as chief of staff for six years. Eric, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Paul. I'm really happy to be here. So I think a, I think a good place to start would be by you sharing with us what you're currently doing. Can you tell us a little bit about Too Many Trees and how that came to be? And what, is that, what does that name mean? Sure. So I currently work as an executive coach, helping leaders grow their impact. And the Too Many Trees was an idea when I was starting the, the firm, I was thinking about what is the value I can add as a coach? And it's really helping people see the big picture. There's the saying, seeing the forest, you can't see the forest for the trees. There's too many trees for you to see the forest. So I, I try to help my clients and others see the big picture so they get out of the day-to-day kind of like being reactive to everything that's coming their way and see the big picture so they can be more intentional and conscious as they face what they're facing, be more intentional in where they place their time and attention to have the impact they want to have. Can you tell us a little bit about about your career, if you were to say, start from the beginning? I like to say I'm on my fourth career at this point. Uh, I actually started off as a physics student, of all things, uh, studying physics in undergrad and even went on to uh, grad school in physics, particularly particle physics. So I was studying, uh, working on the big particle detectors, uh, including out at the Stanford Linear Accelerator, where I was a grad student. I figured out at some point that physics was not interesting enough for me to be make it my whole life. And that's kind of what you have to do to succeed in that field. Uh, the people, my, my fellow grad students were studying physics every night, studying it all weekend, reading papers for fun, and I was uh, playing volleyball. So it was clearly not, I was clearly not going to be able to keep up. That became very evident when I basically failed my qualifying exams. Fortunately, it was 1998 uh, in the middle of the dot-com boom where anybody that knew how to program a computer was making money. And I knew how to program a computer. So I, got high, I switched over to become a programmer uh, and did that for about eight to 10 years where I was bouncing around different startups in the Bay Area and writing code for money, basically. One of the formative experiences there was I was at this one biotech company, which had an amazing technology team. I worked with, like, there was a great physicists and engineers of all types, and we were building some stuff that nobody else in the world could build. And I was really excited about it. It was a great, great team, great work, very proud of the work we were doing. And one year after we raised $40 million, we went bankrupt. And I'm like, what, what happened? We did everything we were supposed to do. As engineers, we delivered all our targets and somehow we're bankrupt now because it turned out our leadership was terrible um, and made some really bad decisions. Now, it kind of made me start thinking like, wow, all of my work as an engineer is going to be wasted if we have bad leadership. And that made me think, I really got to understand this management thing, this leadership thing, this business thing. 
And I was fortunate at that point to learn about the Columbia Technology Management Program, which was specifically designed for this purpose, to take somebody who had a, a technologist who had eight to 10 years of experience and give them the language they need to move to the executive track. So I came to Columbia, went through the two-year technology management program while working full-time, which was a lot of work. It gave me the tools I needed to really learn about business, learn about management, speak the language of executives, speak the language of strategy, and allowed me to pivot my career one more time. After that, I joined Google on the business strategy and operations side, first as a financial analyst doing revenue forecasting, and then as chief of staff to the Google search ads team which meant I was leading business strategy and operations for a $100 billion a year business. But it meant I was working with the top leaders at Google for over six years, thinking about strategy, thinking about how do we get things done, thinking about setting OKRs to translate the strategy into day-to-day -day operations, thinking about the headcount and budget we needed. It was a great job for me. I loved, I loved being involved in all those, all those decisions in learning from these great leaders and watching them as they did their jobs. And then a few years ago, I was starting to think about what's next. I started to realize like the way I was being measured in my job as chief of staff was not the way I wanted to be measured. I actually complained to a friend like, they're not measuring me on the right things. And so my friend was like, so what are the right things? How do you want to measure your life? And that was like, oh, I, I actually have no idea how to answer that question. I'd always just taken what's next, you know, the next role, the next position, the next promotion. That's always what I chased. And I hadn't really been intentional about where I wanted to spend my time and attention. But when I looked back at my career and I thought about what gave me the most meaning and energy was helping people get unstuck, talking to people, helping them figure out what would make sense for them to take a next step. And that's actually the part I loved most about being a chief of staff. It was the hour a week I spent with my VP figuring like, what the hell do we do now? What's important? Where are we gonna focus? And all the other stuff, the other strategy operations, all that other work was kind of to get me that one hour in a room with my VP. My friend was like, that, that sounds like coaching. Have you considered coaching? And I was like, that's a job you can do? And it turns out it is. I went to got trained and certified and opened a coaching business a year later. And here I am. Wow. There's, there's a lot of, you said a lot of interesting things there. I wanted to go back or start by going back to the time that you spent at SPS in the tech management program. How were you able to implement what you were learning through the courses or from your classmates or from faculty, how did you then take that learning and implement it at Google or, or later on in your career? The main thing that the technology management program kind of emphasizes is like the technology is not an end in itself. It's to serve the business, it's to serve the customer. And so that was a really key mental shift for me. One of my professors even said, if you want to understand how executives think, you have to understand the money. And so that's when we were learning to read balance sheets and, and understand all the ins and outs of accounting. And he's like, you have to understand the money. And I was like, as an engineer, I didn't understand the money. I'm like, no, we just build cool stuff and that's what matters. So it actually did influence my next position because when I was looking for a job, I saw this job at Google that was a financial analyst role, but it was forecasting revenue. I was like, if I have to analyze and forecast the revenue, I'm going to really understand the money. And I bet that's going to help. And that turned out to be absolutely 1000% true. Six months after I joined Google, I was in the room with Eric Schmidt and Patrick Brichette, the CEO and CFO of Google, presenting on revenue because every month they want to know what's going on in revenue. It was like top of mind for them. And little old me was all of a sudden in these top level executive discussions because I knew about the money. So it was very much a turning point in my career to really understand the money and therefore translate that into greater influence because that's what those executives cared about. 
And it directly translated me getting that chief of staff role because the VP I, that hired me had worked with me in these meetings to talk about revenue. And he's like, you understand my business. Come help me run the business. The tech management program was critical in, in kind of pivoting to understand those are the executive concerns and really learning how to do that. You also mentioned that it took you a while to, to realize what was important to you and, and, and what you enjoyed. And your friends said that, that maybe what you enjoyed is coaching. Why do you think it took you so long to get to that point? Is it just where, do you feel like you were hyper-focused on what had to happen next and just like grinding, grinding, grinding that you didn't have time for that self-reflection? Yeah, I think that's a lot of it. I'm a, I'm a typical high achiever in that I like exceeding expectations, like going for that gold star. And so I kind of define myself by what other people were asking of me. My manager wants me to do this. I say, great, let me do it. And just really focused on that for most of my career. I guess this is time to bring up the fact that this led me to burn out <laughs> about three years into Google, where in most of my other companies that I'd worked at, I could reach a steady state where I knew how to do my job. I did it well. And I could kind of satisfy all the expectations placed on me. At Google, once they saw I was handling everything I was doing, they're like, oh, let's give you more. Oh, you can do that? Great, let's give you more. Oh, you can handle that? Here's some more work. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> I never learned how to say no because I never, they, they, nobody had ever kind of put me in that position where they're just like, we're gonna give you more work because you're doing it well. Like you're doing great, do more. And I didn't know how to say no. And that led to me working 100 plus hour weeks for many months and eventually my body giving out and um, like me being in bed for a week. So that was kind of a, a, a turning point for me to realize like, oh yeah, this is not sustainable. I have to start being a little more intentional and thoughtful in what I say yes to. Uh, that was a few years before the, the, the pivot to coaching, but it, it kind of did set a tone of like, I have a choice of what to pay attention to, of what to, which expectations to try to fulfill basically can't keep everybody happy. So who am I going to choose to keep happy? You mentioned in our in our prior conversation that along with being able to to say no, you have to understand that in saying no there's some consequences. Can you talk a little bit about that and and how that uh, how that kind of set you on your on your path? So I mean I mentioned I burned out and I realized I had a choice and the choice was stop working so much. But I had never been willing to even entertain that choice, to even consider that as a choice because there would be consequences. In this case, though, I decided I was ready. I was ready to quit. You know, I started like I'm just going to quit rather than keep going at this pace. But before I did that, I went to my manager and said, "Like, I'm not going to keep working like this." And she's like, "Oh, if you can't handle the work, we're going to find somebody who can." I'm like, okay. And if you can't handle the work, you're not getting that promotion. I'm going to slash your performance rate. I'm like, I understand. And so I got all the consequences I feared. She took away half my team, gave it to somebody else. She slashed my performance rating. And the weird part for me was, this is what I had feared most, but it didn't feel like failure. It actually felt like liberation. I felt free because all of a sudden I was working 40 or 50 hours a week and getting paid the same amount of money. I'm like, this is a much better deal for me. <laughs> I had time to spend with my friends and my family. I had time to pursue my own projects outside of work. And that was just such a weird thing because I had felt my previous self had assumed that if I failed like that, I would feel miserable. And that was not what happened. And it gave me the confidence to say, wait, what else, what other choices have I been making without realizing it that I, I didn't realize I could do this? And yeah, there are consequences. Like later on as my chief of staff job, I 
I ignored a lot of people. I'm like, look, I can't, I can't keep everybody happy. And what I learned in my next job as a chief of staff was like, show the strain. Hey, this is going to be really stretching me if I take that on. Can I, what can we delay? What can we push back? So I have the proactive communication up front of like, this is the consequences of me taking this on. What can wait? And that, that turns out to be much more effective. And actually people appreciate hearing it up front rather than getting to the end and realizing it's not done or it's not done well because I was overloaded. So that was a real eye-opener for me and a lesson I pass on to a lot of my clients, it turns out. You've had these, these big jobs, chief of staff. Can you talk about something that surprised you about managing a team? I think the biggest surprise for me was I, when I first became a manager, I managed people the way I wanted to be managed. And I'm a self-starter. I like figuring things out myself. I don't like being micromanaged. So I manage my team that way. I'm like, here's the big picture. Here's the, the goal. Go figure it out. And that's how I want to be managed. I assumed everybody would like that. The problem is, at the time, I was managing a bunch of people straight out of college, and they had no idea what to do. And they were just lost. And they felt very just confused and lost and like, oh, God, I don't even know how to get started here. Fortunately, I took a uh, management training class at Google on situational leadership, which is saying that, yeah, different people need different management styles in different situations. And if somebody's new to something and doesn't know what, even where to start, you actually do want to, quote unquote, micromanage them. You need to be very con concrete and say, do this, do this, do this, to give them the framework that they can then start latching themselves onto. And then they can level themselves up into being more of a self-starter, being more self-directed. But at the time, I was like, no, just everybody should want to be managed the way I want to be managed, which turns out not to be true. So my first year as chief of staff, I actually spent a lot of time taking on all these projects and saying yes to everybody again. Like it was a habit that I had not broken at that point. And then a year into that job, I was actually frustrated and miserable again. I'm like, I'm doing all this work. doesn't feel meaningful. And I was starting to interview like, okay, maybe I should go get another job. Before I quit, let me have a conversation. So I went to my VP and said, hey, I feel like I'm spending my, all my time on these kind of operational low value things. I feel like there's this strategic work I want to do and I think would be higher value. And there's just no time for it with all the other stuff that's loaded on my plate. And I was very fortunate that my VP was like, yeah, I agree. I want you to be doing the more strategic work. Let's work together to get that other stuff off your plate, find somebody else to do it. So you can be, be focused on the stuff I want you to focus on. That had two immediate consequences. One was obviously I became much happier because I got, I, I took this chance to speak up about what I needed and he received it and, and responded well to it. And it made my life immediately better. But it also meant that I had established a communication and trust with him that we could talk about what was really happening and I could be vulnerable and share, this is what I'm experiencing, which meant I could trust him with that going forward. And that's part of why I worked for him for over six years is we had that trust built from that uh, initial conversation that I could just continue just like telling him what I thought and being really straightforward with him. I didn't have to veil myself or mask myself at work to try to live up to it. I could just be who I was. And that just made everything better. And I recognize, you know, I want to be clear here. Part of that was privilege on my part. Like I'm a white passing dude and there's a lot of stuff I can get away with. And I knew I had other options. Uh, so I could afford to be more vulnerable in that way and know I would be okay. And I know a lot of other people don't have that freedom to be that vulnerable at work. You take this other position and then it sounds like maybe there's other jobs that you, that you have before the executive coach. At what point do you decide that this is where I'm headed? About four years into the chief of staff role, I was very comfortable. I mean, I was doing the job well. I had this great relationship with my VP. 
I thought he was, an, I think he's an amazing leader, an amazing guy. And so I was pretty happy. But I, like I said, that's around when I had that conversation. Like, I don't know if they're measuring me on the th things that I think matter most. Part of that was recognizing that working on search ads, my job was make Google richer. <laughs> that's, hitting the revenue growth targets was pretty much my entire job. It's important and I was good at it. Part of this was also prompted by the fact that I had a traumatic bike crash around then. I literally broke my neck. I went over my, the handlebars at 30 miles an hour and broke my neck and I was fine. I'm not paralyzed, I'm not dead, but there was a chance of all those things and I got very lucky that I didn't need, that none of that happened. And these kind of near-death experiences obviously asks, has one questioning, what's one, what, what am I doing with my life? So that's part of what prompted this set of reflections. And like, how, if, if I had died today, would I be happy with what I'm doing with my life? And I was like, I don't know if that's true. And I realized I just, I wanted to have more personal impact. I wanted to, you know, Google was scale. It's like, you know, running a huge business, billions of users, billions of dollars. It was huge scale, but I was a very small part of that. And I wanted something where I could have personal impact on the people I was working with. And uh, coaching filled that. So as far as an intentional plan, it kind of came together over time. Uh, once I started identifying coaching as a possibility, I reached out to a bunch of coaches. And I said, hey, tell me about this. I don't understand this. What is this thing? How do you get involved? How do you get started? I started doing it on my own, like coaching friends and and uh, people in my network, like, hey, I want to do this. Is anybody interested in talking to me as a mentor or coach? And people said yes. And I found I really enjoyed it and people seemed to get value from it. When I talked to coaches, they said I should get trained and certified. Um, and so I did that. I did a year-long training and certification program with an institute called New Ventures West here in San Francisco. And after that, I'm like, I really love this. I want to do more of it. Um, but even then I was like, let me make sure that I can turn this into a business. So I spent a year running a coaching business on the side, um, testing out that people would actually pay me to do this. I can get more than one client. I can get clients that aren't just my friends. <laughs> and once I had kind of established all that, then I pulled the trigger and uh, decided to become self-employed. Which qualities do you think you possess that, that make you a good coach? I would say a couple things. One, because of my varied background, I can take a lot of different perspectives. I know what it means to be the engineer. I know what it is to be on the product team. I know what it is to be on the finance team. I know what it means to be on the business team. And so I can help my clients see different perspectives that they might not know from their own perspective. If, if they've been an engineer their whole life, they might not understand. Why does revenue matter? And I can help explain that. A lot of my clients like working with me because I've had experience at a real at tech companies. Like a lot of a lot of coaches actually come from an HR background or psychology background, which is great and very important, but it means they don't speak necessarily speak the language of the tech people I often work with. But I think most of all, I, I, one of my clients put it beautifully at some point. He's like, what I like about you is that you make it clear you see my perspective. You share what I'm seeing. You're looking at things the same way I am. And then you turn my head and help me see a new perspective from where I am. And that's really what I try to do is really understand viscerally where my client is today and offer them a new perspective that offers them a possibility that they didn't see from where they currently are. When we spoke earlier, you talked about clarity and focus. Can you share with us how this has impacted your work and also your personal life? Because I know you mentioned at some point, I don't know if it, was, if it predated the bicycle incident, but I know you mentioned that you were in a relationship and you decided like, all right, I'm going to, like this relationship is moving forward. And like, I want to make sure that I have time for that. 
So clarity and focus was kind of an idea I came up with actually a couple of years into be, being an executive coach because people kept on asking me like, what do you see in the most effective leaders that you that that separates them from everybody else? And I kept on coming back to that question, and I eventually landed on this formula of clarity and focus. And what I mean by clarity is, is just is being really clear on what's most important, because you can't do everything. And that's something that people don't want to hear, especially high performers. Like, I can do it all. I can be a great engineer, and I can be a great dad, and a great parent, and I can also run you know, triathlons in my spare time. And it's just like, that's it, at some point, that is not true. There's a limit to how much you can do because we're constrained by, well, sleep. <laughs> and you know, there's only so much time available in the day and in the week. And so with the limited amount of time we have, what are you going to do with it? And where are you going to put it? Where are you going to put your time and attention? And it's very easy to be reactive and just say, well, I'll just do whatever comes my way. And just like, okay, this coming, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And that means you're in this reactive mode where you're kind of being bounced around like a pinball where the whole the world is kind of acting upon you and you're not in control. What I found is the, the great leaders I knew had flipped that around. They were like, no, I know what's important. I'm going to put my time and attention here and make sure that comes first. And so the focus part is, if this is most important, I'm going to say no to other things to enable me doing the important thing. There's a um, Steve Jobs quote. It's, it's something like, people think focus means saying yes to the most important thing, but that's not what it means at all. It means saying no to the hundred other good ideas that you're considering so that you can say yes to the one important thing. And that's the, the, the key part about focus is it's not about saying yes, it's saying no to everything else so that you can say yes to the one thing and really move it forward. Because if you put your time and attention on one thing, it's going to move faster than if it's like one of 10 things you're trying to do at once. How do you help clients or even personally, how do you decide what are those important things? Like, how do you, do you like assign different things, whether it's like relationships, work responsibilities, like do they get like a point system or something? I mean, that's, that is one exercise I do. I, I ask people to say, like, what are the most important things in your life? And what are your most important priorities? And I, they start listing them off. And they're like, great. Boom, 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 boom. Okay, let's look at your calendar. Does your calendar reflect those priorities? And the answer is almost never yes. And it's like, okay. What do you want to do about that? Because <laughs> what often happens, they look at it like, no, I spend most of my time on work. It's like, okay. Like, what do you want to do about that? It, do you want to change that? And they're like, well, I have to get all this stuff at work. I can't, it can't not do it. It's like, well, let's, t let's test that assumption. What would happen if you just stopped working at 6 p.m.? You know, part of it is learning to prioritize within the time you have at work. So, you know, the story I often tell, when I was single, like, it was no problem to work until midnight every night because I had nothing better to do. Like, what was I going to do? Go home and watch Netflix? Like, no, it's like, I might as well work and get something done. When I started dating the woman that's now my wife, I was really motivated to get off work at 6 p.m. and go be with her. And it turned out I got about 90 to 95% of the same amount of work done, uh, the, the important work done, because I just did it first. I stopped goofing around during the day. I stopped dealing with emails and I would blow off meetings that weren't important so that I could get stuff done so I could go be with my girlfriend. And I think this is, this is a generalizable truth. I mean, people have done studies now like of the four-day work week and and they've shown that people are actually pretty much as productive and sometimes more productive on a four-day work week as they are in a five-day work week because it turns out 
hours worked is not the right way to measure most of our the work that we do these days. Thought work is not measured by the clock. It's not measured by output. It's not measured by like, I put in this much time and I get this much output. It's like, can I put my time and attention on the stuff that really matters, the stuff that has impact? Being more rested and actually having time to think and reflect turns out to make you better at that, not worse. I wanted to know if you had any advice that you would like to share with Columbia students about how they can make the most of their time at Columbia. I guess what I'd say is like, it's about the people in the end. Like the, the, the material is great and that you're gonna learn a lot by what you study in class. But I'll be honest that a lot of what I studied in class, I don't remember the details. Like I've got the books behind me, like I can look them up if I need to. But what sticks with you are the, the, the people. And so make the time to be with your classmates. Take the time to actually go to, to a professor's office hours. They, they're, they're there to help, they wanna to talk to you. A lot of people don't take advantage of that. And they can be great mentors and people that you connect with and and uh, get advice from for the next several decades. Not It's not just a transactional thing right now where it's like you go to their class and you get an A and that's it. Create the relationships that will serve you for decades, I guess, is maybe the, the advice I would give. I know that you have a book that you've been working on that's that's going to be releasing in the upcoming months. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. The title is You Have a Choice Beyond Hard Work to Meaningful Impact. And it's sharing a lot of what we've talked about in this uh, in, in this recording so far. It's it's really this idea of when you feel stuck and you don't feel you have a choice, let's look at what's actually keeping you from making different choices. So in my case, when I was burning out, the the rule I had for myself was like, I have to do everything my manager says, no matter what. And I didn't question that rule until I was lying in sick, lying in bed sick after burning out. And I was like, Wait a second. Why do I have to do that? Well, what is so important to me about this promotion that I'm willing to sacrifice my health, my friends, my family to get the promotion? And once I said I don't have to do that, like that was like a light bulb moment for like, oh, I can make a different choice here. And as we talked about, then the 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 I modified the rule. I have to do everything my manager says unless I accept the consequences of not doing so. And then I accepted the consequences. And it was turned out in a very it turned out as poorly as I expected, and yet it, it felt really good. And that, that paradox was, was so powerful. And that's the point of this book is like, I'm, I really lead, I want to lead readers through this process of understanding the ways in which they are keeping themselves stuck. So the other, the other kind of principle I use throughout the book is how are you the problem? Like, because once you understand how you are contributing to the situation, then you can make a different choice. I had a client at some point, very senior person, who was working for a VP that was unreasonable. And she, my client was complaining to me, my boss is not backing me up the way she should. She's not supporting me the way she should. She's not making my life easier the way she should. I'm like, okay, what are you gonna do about it? She's like, well, she should change. I'm like, but what if she doesn't? Well, she should change. How would I make her change? I'm like, you can't, that's, that's up to her. In the world where she doesn't change, what will you do differently? And she really didn't like that because it's like that put the burden and the responsibility back on her to make a, to take a different action and work in a world where her manager was not the manager she wanted. But that was the way in which she was holding herself stuck. She was waiting for the manager to change. The manager wasn't changing. There's nothing she could do. But once I put it back on her shoulders and said, what can you do differently in that situation to get different results? That's when she had a choice again. And that's the um, process I lead people through in the book is to see 
the choices they do have, even in situations which are really tough, and people get stuck in tough situations all the time where they need a job and they really can't afford to piss off their manager. But even in that situation, you have a you can tell the way you interpret actions, the way you tell stories about what's happening to you make a difference. And that's what I try to lead people through in the book. Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about your career, your prior work, the important work that you're doing now. Well, thank you so much, Paul. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and to you know, share these ideas with uh, Columbia students so they can benefit and hopefully uh, make different choices and don't have to burn out completely the way I did to uh, realize they have a choice. And where can our students, if they wanted to find out more about you or, or see what you're up to, where can they find you? Easiest way is to go to my site, toomanytrees.com. From there, you can sign up for my newsletter. You can check out everything I'm up to. There's a link to the book there as well. Thank you for listening to Rising to the Top Lessons in Leadership. For more episodes, subscribe on Spotify, SoundCloud, or Apple Podcasts. To get more information and tips on how you can advance your career, visit Columbia University's Career Design Lab at careerdesignlab.sps.columbia.edu. Thank you to Peter Shea for sound editing this episode.